Uh, This morning we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. One day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. So this is a bit of a dangerous question to start off with here this morning, um, but I'm going to ask for a show of hands. Did anyone quit their jobs to follow Jesus after last week's sermon? (laughs) Okay, thanks, Gerald. appreciate that. Last week we were talking about these calling, just walking up to these random people and, and inviting them to follow them, and they're turning away and quitting their jobs to follow after him. And I thought, well, I better check out to see if people are like doing what I'm talking about here. Um, so there were two stories we talked about last week. There was this story of Jesus calling Peter and his companions to drop their fishing nets and follow after him. And then we talked about another story where Jesus went up to a man named Levi, who was a tax collector, and we're told that Levi abandoned his tax booth and followed after Jesus. But in between these two stories of people leaving their jobs to follow after Jesus, uh, there were two stories that Luke tells us of miraculous healings. And I'd like to talk about those this morning. Our job during this series that we're doing in the season of Lent is not only to pay attention to the details of these stories, but to watch for how they draw our attention further on ahead to the cross. Now, the first was a man covered in leprosy. This is the first people that Je- person that Jesus interacts with here in Luke chapter 5. Now, he was called a leper, and this is one of the more confusing things for a child in Sunday school to understand. You want to talk about God breathing into dust and creating a human, that's easy to understand. You want to talk about animals marching from all around the world two by two into a floating ark to save it from a worldwide flood, that's easy to understand. You want to talk about someone being swallowed by a giant fish, that's easy to understand. But this seems to get kids, because every time you talk to a kid about this story, he's in like, then a leper came up to Jesus. And what goes in the mind of every child when they hear this story? A leopard. And they're like, well, this is strange. Like, the Old Testament has lots of animals, but not the New Testament. Uh, Jesus doesn't interact with animals a whole lot. And all of a sudden, there's a leopard. And then you say the parent or the Sunday school teacher corrects the child and said, no, no, not a leopard. It was a man. And then the child thinks this. So it's a man who looks like a leopard. That's what a leper is, right? So it's confusing. But this, of course, is uh, as we grow up, we begin to understand that, okay, leprosy is not 
has nothing to do with the leopard at all, but it's something to do with skin disease. So leprosy is a chronic infectious disease primarily affecting the skin. And as I was rereading this passage again this week, I noticed that there was a little footnote in the Bible. Now, as you're reading your Bible, if you see a little footnote, usually it's a little small little letter up in the corner, read it because it'll tell you some important information. And in this particular story, the footnote actually says, this word doesn't mean leprosy, it means a skin disease. So it could have been leprosy or not. So we're going to call it leprosy because that was like the most dramatic disease there was, but it could have been something else. We're not exactly sure. The belief, though, was that any contact with an infected person would spread the disease. And so when we talk about this man who has leprosy, we're thinking about someone who everyone would have thought, if I touch this person, regardless of what skin disease it was, this was going to be infectious and that the person would spread the disease. And so lepers were considered unclean and therefore untouchable. As I was thinking about this, my mind went back to kind of to the mid and late 80s, which would be easier for some of us in the room than others. And I was thinking about when HIV AIDS was really first coming on the scene. And some of you who will remember the kind of fear that was around culture around that time. And I can remember things about like, can you catch AIDS through spit? And all of a sudden it was like, you're not allowed to spit on each other at the school, which for a young kid is just disastrous. I can't spit on my friends, what? You know, and, but it, there was this fear and this idea that we don't know anything about this disease. We don't know how it's transmitted. Maybe it's by spit. Should we even drink at drinking fountains anymore? Like, can we just contract this disease this easily? And of course, in time we learn, no, that's not how this works. But this is the kind of maybe mentality, something we can identify with the way that people thought about skin diseases thousands of years back. Now, in truth, in order to catch the disease of leprosy, you would need to be in prolonged, close contact with someone with untreated leprosy over a number of months. So it wasn't like if you touched them, you would get the disease, but they thought you did. And this is an important part of Jewish way of living. In Leviticus chapter 13, which if you want to know more about this, you can listen to our podcast from November 18th because uh, we talked all about this passage. But in Leviticus 13, the heading in my Bible says regulations about infectious skin diseases. And there's this whole chapter that has to do what happens if you find someone with a skin disease. So I'll just read the first couple of verses for you here. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when anyone has a swelling or a rash or a bright spot on his skin that may become an infectious skin disease, he must, bring, he must be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of the sons who is a priest. The priest is to examine the sore on his skin, and if the hair in the sore has turned white and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, it is an infectious skin disease. When the priest examines him, he shall pronounce him ceremonially unclean. Now, we do have some doctors here this morning, and they could confirm whether or not the Bible is true in that verse. But I was thinking about this and wonder and thinking, like, I could never have hacked it as a priest, like, way back in the day, right? Because I have a really queasy stomach. And if you just show me, like, an open wound, I'll just be on the ground. So some, if I would have had a lineup of people bringing me all their infectious skin diseases that I had to make a decision on, it just wouldn't have worked. But this is the way that, the, that it worked, okay? And so we have to think about this leper in Luke chapter 5, that these were the parameters. So if he had an infectious skin disease, he would have had to go to the priest, they would have looked at it, they would have examined his skin, and they would have declared him to be unclean. And this was the case if someone had a swelling, or a rash, or a bright spot, or raw flesh, or boils, or reddish-white spots, or burns. The list goes on in chapter 13. Now, just as an aside, this really doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about, but I just think that it's important to do this. I don't think that any pastor has ever quoted this verse in a sermon, so I'd just like to read Leviticus 13.40 for you. When a man has lost his hair and is bald, he is clean. Okay. 
I don't have anything else to say. I just wanted to read that. Okay, so it's the end of chapter 13 that really gets to the crux of it here, okay? So chapter 13 is filled with all these examples of these very particular, well, what if the skin looks like this? Well, then it's probably this. Or what if the skin looks like this? And then at the end, after the comment about bald heads being clean, this is what we read, verse 45 to 46. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. So think about this. You have some kind of a rash or a boil on your skin. You go and visit the priest and they say, we think this is infectious. And you have to become this pariah in your culture. You have to make yourself this outsider. You have to physically make yourself look sick. You have to cry unclean so that if someone's coming up to you, maybe they're going to shake your hand. You have to yell unclean so they don't touch you accidentally. You have to say you're unclean so that parents will grab their children's hands when they walk by so they don't accidentally bump into you. And again, this is the context in which the leper in Luke 5 is living, an outcast, making sure that no one comes near him. And so we're told in Luke 5.12 that when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what happens next is profound. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Now knowing the Jewish law and knowing what everyone else around him was doing, this was a profound act. He reached out, and he doesn't just, like, from a distance, like, cast a spell, but he actually touches him. He lays his hand on this person with an infectious skin disease who is an outcast and who hasn't probably been touched for years. And immediately, the leprosy left him. So why did he touch him? He didn't need to touch him in order to heal him. He could have just spoken the words. We know that from other accounts in Scripture. I think he touched him because his body wasn't the only thing that needed healing. It wasn't just the leprosy that needed to leave, but it was the social exclusion that needed to leave. Jesus goes on to encourage him to go through the rituals of Leviticus 13, do the things that were instructed in the law, to be fully reinstated into the community. He touched him as the example of first of many people who would touch him again, who would welcome back into the community. And of course the news spread, which led to more crowds, which led to more healings. Now, as confused as a child may be about lepers, they love the next story that Luke tells, and most of us do as well. So the crowds begin to swell, and as the crowds begin to swell, the local religious leaders started coming by. You know, at first, it's just this guy hanging out with some fishermen, and that's whatever. But now all these crowds are going. They're pressing on around Jesus. People are having a hard time getting to him, and the religious folks are like, you know, we gotta, we got to keep an eye on this guy. we got to get close to him here. The proximity of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is another element in these early stages of Jesus' public ministry that foreshadow his journey to the cross. Early in Luke, they just appear sporadically. By the end, they are front and center. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're the ones up front bringing him to the authorities to have him arrested and crucified. But at this point, the crowd was pressing in on every side. And some people couldn't find their way to this healer that was passing through town. 
If the leper was prevented from coming to Jesus by socio-religious barriers, the paralytic had the even more tangible barrier of his broken body, not to mention the crowds. He couldn't physically walk to meet Jesus, and even if he could, he would have had a hard time getting through all of the crowds. Well, creativity is often the product of boundaries. When the choice is either to give up or to innovate, people will do all kinds of things. I was thinking this week about this ongoing crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, and I was thinking actually a member of our community, Kristen Taylor, is going down to do some observation and, and do some writing on behalf of the women and children down there. Now, regardless of what you think the political solution to this is, because that's not what we're here to talk about, I'd like us to think maybe for a moment about the human element of, of the person who finds themselves wanting to enter a country illegally. I think it's easy for us to think about, you know, from our own perspective and where we're at and with all of the rights and privileges that we have, um, what we might do in a situation like that. But when I think about someone who doesn't have a home or they're violent and they're threatened by all kinds of different things, I think, what wouldn't I do in order to take care of my family? What law would I not break in order to bring about freedom or health or wholeness for myself and my family? And I think as we picture what it's like to be in a situation like that. We have maybe just a, a small glimpse of what was happening with this man and his friends as they felt like they were so close to healing and freedom, but they couldn't find their way through. Being so close to the potential of a healthy body, the friends of this paralyzed man clamber onto the roof of the house he was in, and they start tearing open a hole in the roof. Literally just this morning, I went up to my mailbox, and there was a quote from a roofing company. We need to reply, we need to repair our roof this year, and so I opened that and saw this terrible, ugly number and was a little discouraged. But I was imagining, thinking about this story, that whoever owned this house where Jesus was teaching in, all of a sudden looks up, and they see someone tearing the roof off of their house. Like, I would not be impressed to see that. And so he see, looks up and he sees it says they're taking the tiles off of his roof. Because these people are like, we don't care about the property damage. We don't care about the consequences here. There is someone in there who could potentially heal our friend, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there. Do with me what you will. In Luke 5.20, we read, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is interesting on a lot of different levels here. Now, first of all, apparently... Jesus didn't respond because of anything the paralyzed man did. It wasn't the paralyzed man's faith. It was his friend's faith. He looks up, he sees these guys tearing the roof apart and letting this guy down on a stretcher. They've got some kind of pulley system going. And he's like, that's cool. All right. And he pronounces forgiveness over this man. Jesus recognized this decisive action of the man's friends as faith. We'll talk about that around the discussion tables later. What is it? Have we been the recipient of this kind of friendship in the past, or have we been that kind of friend uh, who would act that Jesus would refer to as faith? And we're going to come back to the importance of being a good friend later as well in our June series, but for now, I just want to point out the possibility of our faith being able to positively impact someone else's health and well-being. Are we willing to put ourselves in harm's way? Are we willing to, to kind of break the rules in order to stand up for the person who needs uh, help in our, in our spheres of influence or beyond? Now, of course, uh, to this point in the story, the man is still lying there paralyzed. So the friends have this great faith. They tear open the horse, hole in the roof. They lower him down on this pulley system. And Jesus says, because of your great faith, your sins are forgiven. And that may be all well and good, but the man still can't walk, right? Just as Jesus addressed the social well-being of the man who is suffering from leprosy, his words to the paralytic address the well-being of his soul. 
It's like he was saying there is so much more to this life than the physical. So what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to take care of your spiritual paralysis first and foremost. And of course, Jesus knew there was a crowd pressing him from all over, and I have a feeling that he wanted to say something that didn't just impact this man. So he says, your sins are forgiven, but I think he was saying something to the whole crowd that was gathered. A healing would affect this one man, but this announcement of forgiveness would affect everyone. Well, the response of the religious leaders was strong. Blasphemy, they called it. That's like the worst charge of all. Blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And those of us who have heard this story dozens or hundreds or thousands of times before have to try hard to remember that forgiveness wasn't always this readily available. Forgiveness wasn't always just announced like this, your sins are forgiven. No, there were these complex rituals that people had to go through. There was only the high priest who could offer this forgiveness, and it was sporadic. It was not this regularly, readily available forgiveness and grace. But Jesus' forgiveness of this man points dramatically to what he would do on the cross. In Luke 23, 34, hanging from the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, as we've done each week during the season of Lent, we have to stop short. I've mentioned too much about the cross already, so we'll stop there. Because we have to continue this journey, step by step, on the way to the cross. Luke chapter 5, 23 to 25, I'll just read again the conclusion of this story. Which is easier to say, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Now what a beautiful picture. The symbol of his infirmity tucked neatly under his arm. The man takes this mat that he'd been lying on for who knows how long and walks out of the house. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, I walked into our living room and there were boxes everywhere and just a giant mess all over the place. Uh, Melissa had read something online about Marie Kondo and had decided now is the time to like, just embrace joy. Now, if you're not familiar with this woman, she has this, this idea, this concept that you're supposed to gonna go through everything in your house, and if, if something in your house doesn't bring you joy, you either throw it in the trash or you give it away to someone else so they can make a mess in their house, I guess. So you're supposed to get rid of this stuff. And so Melissa was doing this. She's going through. She's away, get it away, get it away. And she got through, I think, two rooms of the house, and, and, she's, and she's got her eyes set on the garage this summer. I can't wait to see how that works out. Um, anyways, when I was, I was looking for a picture of Marie Kondo, and I realized that she is like a wonderful target for memes, so I uh, thought I'd share this one. This baby does not spark joy for me, so it will have to go. And I like this person's comment. After a heated discussion with Marie Kondo, I've decided to throw myself in the trash. The idea of having our homes swept clean and being surrounded only by things that bring us joy can bring out the cynic in all of us, right? Like, oh, that's not going to happen. That's impossible. But I think we face a similar struggle when it comes to accepting our own forgiveness. See, I was thinking about this cleaning kind of frenzy because of this man. He stands up, he's been paralyzed, he stands up, and then he walks away with this mat under his arm. And I can just picture Marie Kondo saying, throw it out, burn it, throw it in the trash. It doesn't bring you joy. This is a symbol of your suffering. This is a symbol of your weakness. This is a symbol of your past. Let it go, get rid of it. But he hangs on to it. 
And I think that even when we are offered forgiveness or a new hope or a new start, sometimes we cling tightly to the thing that we should let go of. How often do we carry guilt and shame around with us, tucked under our arms, carrying around the symbol of our past instead of letting it go? At the end of this reading, we heard that everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. But the question that I was asking is, did they understand that Jesus' announcement of sin, of the forgiveness of sin, was for them too? Because in the moment he just said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And we know how the story goes. We know that that forgiveness would actually be extended to everyone. But did they know? Or did they walk away with the guilt and the weight of their own sin and their own shortcomings? Later on in Acts chapter 10, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the message would be explained this way, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's what the early believers understood, that there is this faith that just enters you into this world of forgiveness and grace. But we have a choice. Miroslav Volf observes this fact that while this announcement is just boldly put out there, your sins are forgiven, that so many people don't actually receive that gift. So many people don't believe it, maybe, or maybe say we believe it, but we don't embrace it in the core of our being. He writes, God has given, but we haven't received. Forgiveness is then stuck in the middle between the God who forgives and humans who don't receive. And that's what I want to poke at a little bit this morning. God's forgiveness has been announced. His grace has been offered. Is there something in us that wants to cling to our past instead of letting go and moving on? I'll close with a story this morning uh, about uh, something that happened to me and how I responded and then how I responded after something else that happened to me. And you don't have to identify with the first part of it. Um, it's just humiliating. Uh, but the second part of it, I want you to kind of try to track with my experience a little bit and see if there's anything that kind of resonates in your own heart. And as we've been doing each week during the season in Lent, we're going to take time of quiet to reflect and I'm going to ask us to do a little of reflection, whether you might fall into the same trap that I found myself falling into. So the story begins on like a real high. The story begins on a real high. About six weeks ago, our family was on vacation in Florida. And on the last day of our vacation, we went and saw a spring training game in Clearwater. And it was great. The sun was out. The boys got all kinds of autographs from the players. It was just a great time. We're driving. Everyone's like, this is the best day of the whole vacation. This is awesome. We were driving back, and, and I was kind of watching the time on the GPS and realizing, ah, we're, you know, we're, we were heading right from the game to the airport, and I was thinking, shoot, like, you know, we're going we're gonna to really be kind of close here. So I decided, I didn't decide, Melissa decided, um, that I would take the toll road, that I would pay like the 7 or $8, which really bothered me to do, to get there a little quicker. And then actually we got there so quickly that I thought, oh, this is perfect. Because the, the van was on empty, and I thought, instead of pulling into the airport and paying for the expensive gas at the, at the car rental place, I'll just drive around the block and find a cheaper gas station, so I'll save myself like another few dollars that I spent on the tolls. So instead of, uh, we got off the toll road, instead of turning left into the airport, I went straight. And I was just like, oh, I'll just keep my eyes open for a gas station. But it was getting a little later now. I was starting to get a little dark. I was getting a little concerned about the time because I wasn't seeing any kind of neighborhood or any place where a gas station or restaurant or anything would be. One of the kids who will remain nameless had to go to the bathroom really bad, and they were bugging me. And I'm driving, and I'm trying to keep my eyes open, and I'm paying attention to the clock, and I'm paying attention to everything except my speedometer. And all of a sudden, I see the lights. 
and I pull over. And this state trooper comes out, and I get this big, ugly speeding ticket. So close! All I had to do was turn left. So close. So I get this big ticket, and I'm, I'm doing my best. Now, if you want to hear just about how pathetic of a person I am, you can talk to my family, and they will describe just what I was like in that situation. And I basically slid into this uh, real bad space for like the next two or three hours. I was so mad at myself. I was just like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Like, I just threw this money in the garbage. I'm so irresponsible. I was just like in this big, like, giant dark cloud over my head right at the end of our vacation. Um, so we had to wait for a couple hours for the plane to leave. And then I sit on the plane, and I'm like, I'm just going to, like, disappear into whatever. So I threw my earbuds in, and I hit play on whatever podcast I was listening to. I don't even remember what the person was talking about um, during the podcast. And then it comes towards the end, and he says, I'd like to lead you in a meditation exercise. And I was like, okay, we'll do this. I had my eyes closed, but so did half of the people on the plane. It wasn't a big deal. And so he kind of begins this meditation exercise. He says, is there someone who has become like an enemy to you? I said, yeah, me. (laughs) I'm an enemy to me. He says, okay, I want you to sit up straight and hold your hands out in this open posture. And I'm like, well, this is awkward. So I kind of go like this, like just a little bit. Like, not like this. I don't want to be obvious. So I just kind of went like this. I didn't want anyone really seeing what was happening in my head. He says, articulate what bothers you about this person. Name what bothers you. What makes you crazy? This part was easy. I was like, well, he's irresponsible. He wasted money. He ruined a perfect day. He's a bad example. And I just had like this wrong list of this, of this terrible person, you know, myself. And I'm thinking, like, I don't know how this is going to be helpful, this little meditation. I'm just getting more riled up against myself. And then he says this. Name what you imagine bothers them about you. If they were praying this prayer, what are a couple of things they might say to God? This is actually kind of trippy because I'm like, well, it's me. (laughs) So how do I do this exercise? But I realized, like, immediately that there was this other part of me that was like, oh, this is easy, too. He's so hard on me. He doesn't give me any credit for all the good I do. He just wipes it all out because of one mistake. He can't forgive me. He can't just move on. And then the question, would you pray that God would bless this person? Not fix them, not punish them, but bless them. And I was sitting there realizing that in this moment and in this experience, which really isn't that significant in the grand scheme of things, I was battling this idea that I couldn't just accept grace, I couldn't just accept my failures, I couldn't just accept forgiveness and move on, but that's exactly what God wanted me to do. And it was quite easy. I kind of flipped like a switch after that. We got back to Toronto, Jude made a crack about my speeding ticket, and I just laughed and let it roll, and it was all good. A couple hours earlier, I probably would have, well, we'll just leave it at that. (laughs) But I was thinking about this a lot as I was reading this passage about offering forgiveness and how difficult it is sometimes for us to accept that because we want to punish ourselves. We want to carry around this guilt or this shame that we've been carrying around for so long instead of just letting it go and receiving the grace of God. 
I love this line from Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York. He writes, you don't have to have it all together in order to merit God's forgiveness. You just have to want it. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. They're beautiful words. I'm going to invite Eric uh, to come on back up. We're going to sing a song in a couple of minutes that we sang earlier. But what I'd like us to do for the next minute, minute and a half, is just in the quiet of this place, to reflect on the words that Jesus spoke to the man who was paralyzed. Friend, your sins are forgiven. And I'd like us to think about whatever it is that we have going on in our lives, whatever mess is paralyzing us, whatever rash is all over our body, whatever thing is going on, I want us to just receive these words. And if there is something that you need to maybe say or let go of, uh, if there's something that you're maybe holding against yourself or some kind of barrier that's getting in the way of you receiving God's forgiveness, then maybe just kind of subtly open your hand a little bit and be willing to let it go. So we'll just take about a minute and a half here, and then Eric will invite you to join in singing that song again. Lord, this morning we hear the words, friend, your sins are forgiven. And it's my prayer that each one of us would be able to receive them and not have them be lost somewhere in the middle because you've given lavishly, you've given abundantly, and we haven't received because of whatever it is that we think we deserve to be labeled as unclean or labeled as an outcast or labeled as, as paralyzed or whatever it is in our own lives, God. But instead, I pray this morning that we would embrace these words of healing and new life and forgiveness. And I pray that you would use us to encourage and inspire the people around us, that we would share this message of hope and new life with everyone in this place, but in the world around us as well. God, go with us now. As many of us will choose to gather around tables and discuss, I pray that you would use us to inspire and encourage one another. And throughout the course of the day, throughout the course of the week, remind us of your offer of grace. In Christ's name, amen.